Well, good morning, church. Uh, If you guys have a Bible, you can open it to John chapter 17. That's where we're going to be this morning as we wrap up our series on why we love the church. The reason that we've been doing this series is because I think that we live in a time where we have to ask this question, why do we love this thing called the church? Why is it so important? Because we live in a time and a place in which um, we, have, we all have Bibles that we can read, and if we work fairly hard, we can understand them uh, pretty well. Uh, we have uh, sermons that we can listen to online. We have worship music that is, we can listen to in the car or at home that is often much better quality than you hear in most churches. Uh, we have community that we can build around ourselves by getting together with friends. Uh, I know a lot of people who uh, have, you know, a group that they meet with, you know, that they hang out with, that they've even hung out with and met with for like the better part of their life, um, that give them accountability and community and fellowship and all that stuff. We, we could sort of piece together the Christian life ourselves and have it really tailor fit us. So why then come here like this collectively every week and be kind of bound by the constraints it feels sometimes of this place? And uh, that's why we've been doing this series. Why is the church important? Why is this collected group of people gathering together regularly important? And we've said it's important because of the view that we get of God through it and the way that we learn about him through it, rather than through the lens of our own experiences and our own lives being all that we ever taken in through. Uh, The community that we have here, being a community that isn't just the one that we personally select to ourselves at our time in life, um, but the community that's bigger than that, where we experience, uh, or even just the idea of the love that we experience in the church and what it means to love each other, and the fact that we don't get to define what love is ourselves when we're in the church, but uh, the scriptures, Bible declares what love is in the church and how we treat each other with love. So uh, as we've gone through this series and we've talked about these different things this morning, I'm excited that we get to wrap up by talking about the mission of the church, why we love the mission that we've been given as a church and why we need the church in order to accomplish that mission. So we're going to read the first six verses of John 17. I'll put them up on the screen here. This is called the high priestly prayer. Jesus has just finished talking to his disciples, preparing them for the end. Um, He's doing a really good job, as Jesus always does, of uh, giving them sort of his last teaching and his last words, knowing that the end is coming. And he's talked with them about the things they need to know about him and about how they're going to proceed without him. And now he begins to pray and talk to God directly about his disciples. John 17, 1 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. We'll stop right there. 
Jesus is praying for his disciples, for his followers. There is no way to overstate the degree to which following Jesus has changed these disciples' lives. Uh, They have given up everything to follow him. Uh, They've walked away from their families, from their homes and communities, from their jobs and livelihoods in order to follow Jesus. And in the culture and the time in which these words are being spoken, those three things determine everything about your identity, uh, your community, uh, where you're from, your family, and what you do. And they've walked away from all of those things in order to follow Jesus. They willingly did it. He didn't have to force them to do it. Why would they do something like that? It was because following Jesus completely changed them and the way that they saw the world. It broke them down and it essentially built them back up into, in some cases, completely different people, and in other cases, completely different versions of themselves. It's a lot like what you uh, see happen in basic training in the military. Uh, As someone heads into the military, your sense of individual self is broken down, and then you're built back up as part of this bigger group, and that's now what your identity is in. You're now a part of this group of people pursuing this common mission together. You're made into something new or at least a different version of yourself. And this is what the disciples experienced when they followed Jesus. They have witnessed miraculous things at his hand. They have witnessed the making of history. And while they probably didn't know at the time the impact that this would have in history, they had to have known that what they were experiencing was indeed historic. They see him miraculously heal people, raise the dead to life. They see power that he has over nature by multiplying food and walking on water and, and calming storms, healing the sick. And they see him speak on behalf of God himself, claiming to have eternal life and claiming to be from God himself. Jesus basically says to them, I'm going to take everything that you know about life and about death, everything you know about the universe, everything that you know about yourselves, everything you know about where you came from and where you're going next, everything you know about family and about love and about hate, everything you know about enemies, everything you know about friends, everything that you know about money, everything that you know about desire, and I'm going to change and turn all those things on their head from how you understand them, coming into this relationship where you follow me. And the reason why they let it change them so much, the reason why they kept following, because they kept following Jesus, even though he continued to challenge everything, it seemed, that they thought about the way things were. And no matter how hard it got to follow him and how much they had to give up in order to do it and how whenever they thought they had arrived and they were fine and they were good and they were right about everything, Jesus showed them, you're not right about everything. And they realized yet again how far off they were from where God had intended and desired them for them to be. Why would they keep following him? Why would they keep doing it again and again, day after day? It was because we see in the way that they live and what it is to follow him, that following Jesus gave these people a profound sense of joy. They were overwhelmed with a profound sense of joy in following Jesus. They loved him, and they loved being with him and following him, and they even loved doing the things that he called them to do, even though they were so often hard things to do. 
Have you ever experienced anything like that? Have you, could you imagine experiencing so much joy and satisfaction and trust in Jesus that you're willing to walk away from the things that these guys walked away from? That you're willing to let go of the things that you find your security in because you feel so secure in Jesus that you can do that without being a perfect human being. How secure do you have to feel in him? How much joy do you have to get in him as you do something like that? And so they follow him and it changes them. It gives them this profound sense of joy. But the other thing that happens, and Jesus talks about it here, is he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Jesus manifested God physically to these guys. So why do they follow him even though it's hard? even though it requires walking away from everything, because they look at Jesus and they see God. And on all the ways that so many people on earth can say, I, I want to learn about God, I want to seek God, I want to understand God, I'm curious about God. How many can say, I have encountered the living God who has been manifested in front of me? And that by knowing Jesus, by knowing this person, that I actually I'm seeing him and walking beside him throughout my life. It was because they could say that. It was because he brought them eternal life. It was because as he just prayed to the Father, here's all of the things that they have heard from me, that they have experienced from me, Father. I have given them the words that you gave me. I have showed them the truth of eternal life and how to find it. I have manifested you to them. He has all of these things to give them. And because of it, we see that if you walk with Jesus, it is profoundly joyful and you encounter God himself in the flesh. Jesus started out as a teacher who had authority and he ended up as a direct line to God himself. And the very idea, the very concept of eternal life, eternal life is now theirs. There is nothing greater than following Jesus. This is what the Bible teaches. It says that there is, there is nothing greater than choosing to follow Jesus. That every day that you get up and choose to follow Jesus, that there is nothing greater that you can do for that day than to choose to follow Jesus, regardless of what else happens. You see it in the lives of people who choose to follow him, and you see the math is this. The more that people seem to let go even for Jesus, the more that they gain from Jesus. The more, the more of the joy, the more fulfillment that they gain from it. There is nothing greater than following Jesus and the living for him. That's what we see in the lives of these disciples. They have experienced true life, and because it's eternal, it's never going away. There's a coach, uh, he was a coach of the 49ers for a number of years, and now I think he coaches at University of Michigan, Jim Harbaugh. Any of you guys ever heard of this guy? Yeah, all right. Okay, a couple people in first service had heard of him, right? So Jim Harbaugh had this saying that was made famous when he was the coach of the 49ers, and he would say to his team often, who's got it better than us? And the answer was nobody. Oh, that's right. Good. Yeah, nobody yelled at first service. And he would say to his team at practice, who's got it better than us? Nobody. And they would say nobody. A lot better than that, they would say it. They had it on t-shirts, um, and they wore it in the locker room, and this became uh, a mantra of theirs as a team. 
As he would ask them, regardless of whether they had won or whether they had lost, how well things were going, he would say to them again and again, guys, who's got it better than us? And I was reading a story about where that came from. And it came from his dad, Jack Harbaugh, who was, a, who was a football coach for a number of colleges and universities. And when his dad was growing up in Ohio as a boy, he said that he would go out in the summers at, at dawn, basically, with all of his friends, and they'd go play all day. 10 or 15 kids, they'd go play outside. They'd go play ball or whatever. At about lunchtime, they'd come back into somebody's mom's house. I don't even think they knew who's at any given time. She'd make them peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. They'd eat them, and then they'd go back out, and they'd keep playing. And uh, all the moms are like, can we do this? Can we just do this? Is this something we can still do? I don't think so. And then they would send them back out, and they'd keep playing until it got dark. And then they would stop playing ball because they couldn't see the ball anymore, and they'd play kick the can because they could see the can underneath the streetlight. And he said that him and his friends during that summer, every once in a while, they'd turn to one another and they'd say to each other, man, who's got it better than us? And their friend would say, nobody. And he passed that along to his boys because as he was raising them as a college football coach, he didn't actually make that much money. And so oftentimes as a family, they would stop and he would say that to them. And he said that uh, when he was a coach in Michigan, that the local car dealership had this thing where they would loan out the dealer cars to the football coaches because the, many of them didn't have cars, so they didn't have a lot of money, and, but they didn't have the car all the time. And so sometimes they'd walk out, they'd look in the driveway and there'd be a car there. And he'd go, the boys would go, hey dad, we've got a car today. And he'd say, who's got it better than us, boys? They'd say, nobody. And then they'd get in the car and they'd drive to school. And then some days they'd walk out and they'd go, dad, where's the car? And he'd be like, no car today, boys, we're walking. And he'd give them a basketball. And he'd say, 100 times on the right, 100 times on the left as you walk to school. And as they'd walk to school, bouncing a basketball, dribbling a basketball, he'd say, who's got it better than us? And they'd say, nobody. He said, when they go on vacations, this family, this dad would turn around and look in the back seat and he'd say, hey guys, who's got it better than us? And they'd say, nobody. And he said, my dad taught me that, and my dad told me that, and I grew up saying that, and stopping at points in my life and saying, regardless of whether I'm winning or whether I'm losing or how the circumstances currently are, can I stop and can I look at my life at this point and can I ask that question, who's got it better than us, and say the answer is nobody. To be a disciple who's following Jesus with everything that you have, is to stop and to be able to say at any point, who's got it better than us? Nobody. Who's got it better than us? Nobody. Because we follow a living God who has given us eternal life, who has shown us the truth, who has told us that nothing bad can defeat us and nothing ultimately good can be taken away from us. And because of that, that we have it better than anyone else could ever have it. That this is what it is to follow Jesus. And so to be one of his disciples was to live this way. And to experience this kind of joy and this kind of fulfillment. And it was at this point, following him, having completely changed their life. This is why, by the way, the church struggles with discipleship. is because we don't know how to disciple people because we don't know how to do what Jesus did. He literally lived his life with them for three years, bringing them along with him in the mission of God. And we don't do that. And so we say, how do we disciple, you know, amidst all the other stuff we have going on and all the craziness and the, and the, and the, and the responsibilities and the things we have going on in life? But for them to devote their whole lives to following Jesus left them saying this again and again and again that no one had it better than them. And it is at this point 
It is at this point that Jesus tells them that he's leaving. And he prays to the Father for them. And here's what he prays in these next few verses after John chapter 7. And starting in verses 8 and through verses 9, he says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So Jesus says to God, I have given them the words that you gave me. They now know the things that I came to teach them and tell them, the gospel, the good news. And now, Father, I pray for them. I pray for these disciples. I don't pray for the world, but I pray for them that you sent me. Why is he specifically praying for them and not even for the world? It's because a few chapters before this, while Jesus was talking directly to them, he gave them a job, and it was a big one. It's right at the end of the vine and the branches in John 15, where Jesus says something to them that is, I think, that is my favorite passage in Scripture, Scripture when he teaches them about being connected to him and, and living and abiding. And then he just kind of sneaks right at the end there, you know, right at the end of this really compelling teaching. He kind of sneaks in right at the end this kind of hard truth. And this is what he says to them in the end of John 15. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. His whole teaching and on abiding and on bearing fruit is coming in the context of him saying this to the disciples. You are no longer ones that I talk to as servants. You are friends. I give to you what the Father gave to me, you now are going to go and do what I've been doing. I'm not going to be the one keeping this going. It's going to be you. Could you even imagine being at this place where your life has been transformed and things are really good? That Jesus has just ridden into Jerusalem and has been celebrated by people and that you've been a part of this amazing ministry that has totally changed your life and it is at that point that he says, and now I'm going to give you the weight of this thing, this job that seems so big and so impossible, how can anybody ever really do it? Have you ever been in a place where like life was so good and then you're handed something, you're handed something and it's so much to handle that you just don't even know what you're going to do. I know what that feels like because somebody once handed me a baby and was like, they're yours now. I took them home and I was like, is there any way that a person can ease into this? Because that would be nice. And there isn't. There isn't a way that you can really ease into the whole baby thing. In fact, um, I remember I was talking to Pastor Sue a couple months ago at the family, before the family meeting. She's like, I'm not going to be at the family meeting tonight because um, I'm going to give uh, Drew, her son had just had a baby, I'm going to give Drew a break for a couple hours. I was like, okay. And then on Monday, I asked her, like, how did it go? She's like, it was pretty good. I went over, just watched the baby for a few hours. I think his wife got to sleep and he, uh, he, took, an, and he took a shower. 
is what she said. And I was like, yeah, that sounds about right. Because I remember when Ellie's mom came after Davy was born, and, uh, and then we were all of a sudden able to sleep again and able to take showers again and eat food again and do things like that uh, because the baby was dominating everything, it seemed, in our life, um, especially then when we had two kids. And I have this picture of her mom, and I was going to show up, but it wouldn't be nice, and, and I really appreciate what her mom did, which is just her mom asleep on our couch. We went downstairs the first morning after she came, and she's, she's sitting on her couch. Her feet are up on the coffee table. She's asleep. She's holding Davy in her arms, and she's got her Bible open on her lap because, of course, she woke up and wanted to do her quiet time, and she just fell asleep, like, holding the baby like this, you know, and we, like, took a picture of her, and this is pretty much her helping us by holding the baby, you know? Like, this is what it's like to, to bring a kid into your life, you know? You're like, life is good. Things are so good. Let's have kids, and then you have a kid, and you're just like, oh, man, this is a lot. This is a lot, and there's no breaks from this thing. And even though there's two of us, it still feels like there need to be like four or five of us, right? Like there's no breaks from this thing. You're handed something that has the potential to be this incredible, great, amazing experience and wonderful thing, this great privilege, tons of responsibility, and you just feel like, man, oh man, life was good. Man, life was good. Life was good when things were good and the responsibility was so much less than this. And Jesus comes to his disciples and he says to them, after these many years of me pouring into you, of me giving to you, of you feeling like you've learned so much and grown so much and been challenged so much, now it's not going to be about you. Now it's going to be about them, about everybody else. Now you're going to be the ones about them because you're not going to have Jesus saying, come on, guys, let's go to some more people. Let's go to some more people, but it's going to be you. You're going to be the ones doing that. We want to know God, but do we want for God to be known? I can say sincerely that I want to know God, but can I say with the same level of desire I want for others to know who he is. That for all of that which I have experienced from him, that it leads me to a place naturally of going, I just want everybody else to have this. Can I say that? I can't. I can't say that. I can't say that I always feel that way or that I even most of the time feel that way. Because what Jesus is calling his disciples to do is to do that very thing, to make him known, to actually manifest him in, the lives, in their own lives for other people. If you know anybody who's good at doing impressions, there's, there's two things you have to know to do an impression of somebody. One, you have to know something that they say. It's like their trademark thing that they say. And then the other thing is you have to know how they say it. That's how you do a good impression. You say what they say, and you say it the way that they say it. If you're good enough at those two things, then you can do a good impression of someone. And what Jesus has spent his time showing the disciples is these are the words of God and this is the heart of God in the way that it's lived out. And so to manifest God, you say his words and you live in a way that's in accordance with those things. You, you share the words of Jesus but you also share it in the way that Jesus would. And when we talked about the history of the church and the Crusades and the popes and all these other things that came in the history that we don't like to talk about as much, so often we're talking about people who said, oh no, I'm just gonna share the words of Jesus. I'm gonna use the words of the Bible. I'm gonna use that, but I don't have to say it like he did. I don't have to live it out the way that Jesus did. 
Because what he's calling us to is both of those things. And so why do we love the church? We love the church because it is not just me who has been called to this thing, and it is not just you who has been called to this thing, which is no longer to be servants, but to be friends, to carry this mission forth, and to want other people to know God. I'm not the only one called to it. You're not the only one called to it. We're all called to it. And we love the church because we're called to it together. He says, you're going to band together, and together you're going to go forth and you're going to do this thing. It's not something you have to know how to do on your own, and it's not something I expect you to do all by yourself. I didn't even do it all by myself. I had my disciples with me. Without the church, we are alone in this. Without the church, we would be trying to do this on our own with no help. And from the church, we gain two things. One, we gain accountability. We gain accountability from the church because together we all are reminding one another of what we're about and what we're doing, even when we don't want to hear it or think about it. And the other thing is we get encouragement, is that we keep each other going. We push one another along and we encourage one another and say, let's remember and let's keep going even when it's hard and it's discouraging and I don't feel like living this way right now. One of the things that we keep each other accountable to and encourage each other with is this. It's just the, it's the truth that it isn't really ever been just about me. That, that my relationship with God and with Jesus has never just been about what I can get from him, but it's always been about what we can all gain from him. This is the thing that the disciples see, that no matter what uh, flawed reason brought them maybe at some point to Jesus, what they were looking for for themselves, that ultimately he was always bringing them along in a way that was like, and here's some other people that we're going to reach with this thing because this isn't just about you. The mission of God is so important. I think this quote from John Piper sums up, sums it up so perfectly. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. The ultimate goal of the church is to worship God. And the problem is, is that there are people who don't worship God. We were created to worship him. This is exactly the reason that we were created. And to not live this way is to live for some other reason than why we were actually designed and created. And so it is because that we can look outside the walls of this church and we can find people who don't worship God, who are not worshiping God, that missions exist, that the mission of God exists. It's because we can look to other countries and we can see people who don't even have the Bible translated into a language where they could read about and understand God, that missions exists. Because how can they worship? How can they believe if they haven't heard and how can they hear if they have not been told Scripture says, blessed are the feet of those that bring the good news so that people can worship God. And the truth is that Jesus brings to the disciples everlasting life. Now, if we're honest, many of us are like, that's not actually why I got into following Jesus, was for other people. 
I got into following Jesus because I want something from Jesus or because it, it helped me or it added something to my life. Just like I can go to a store and I can walk down an aisle and I can take something off the shelves, put it in my cart, and I can pay for it and take it home and unpack it and I can use it. That that's the same thing that I can get from following Jesus. That it's one great thing to add to my life in a compartmentalized way. That it's just another piece of the perfectly balanced American life in which now everything is in harmony and everything is perfectly balanced. That for so many of us that, 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 that following Jesus starts out being about me and what I want and what I can get out of it, but the thing that we remind each other of as the church again and again and again the thing that we keep each other accountable to when we don't want to hear it, the thing that we encourage each other with when, when we're wavering off course and feeling discouraged and feeling like it needs to be about us, that it just needs to be about us right now, the thing that we remind each other of is this was never really just about me. This was never really just about you. This was about something bigger than that. Just like it was never about Jesus just investing in the disciples. He didn't, he didn't say, come to the Jesus Institute where we're going to hang out in this really nice place and I'm going to pour into you for years and then you're going to go out and you're going to do all these amazing things. He said, come with me as we reach other people. That's how you will grow. This wasn't about me. This is about others. But how easy is it to talk all the time about the world, about the gospel, about the fact, you know, that at the end of all of this, we'll be facing God, and yet to still really just care about ourselves and our families and our communities and our friends? To say, yeah, all that stuff matters, and yeah, God loves the whole world and all that stuff, and everything's global, and it's a big deal, but really at the end of the day, to just live our lives in such a way that says, God cares about, I care about me. I care about my family, I care about my friends, I care about the people in my circle. One of the things that has amazed me about Christians the most is our ability to have both lukewarm faith and then be surprised that more people don't believe what we believe. To, to live our faith out halfway and then to be like, why don't more people believe this? Why are we not winning them over? I saw it even in youth ministry as I talked to parents and families who were frustrated about, about, about children who just didn't see how real faith was and then to, to look at a family and think, I don't see it in anything about the way that you live. I see you worship God in your words on a Sunday morning and then literally worship everything else other than that, every other moment of your week. What do you think your kids see they see a God of convenience. They see a gospel that provides a solution when you have a problem and fits you, but maybe not them. Rather than seeing a God that actually changes the way that you live because of how real he is. A God where if I believe these things I say about him, then it's going to be reflected in the way that I live and the values that I have, even if that actually even makes life Harder for my family and I, not easier. We so often wonder why people don't see this thing as real without asking the question, do I live as though this thing is real? Do I actually live like someone who has the secret of eternal life? 
and that those who don't have it will perish? Or do I live like someone who believes in myself and my people and this life alone? Jesus goes on and he says this in John 17, further as he's praying for the disciples, he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. The other thing that we do for one another as the church collectively, as we go about this mission together, is we encourage and we keep each other accountable to this kind of hard truth that we don't belong here, that this isn't actually our home, that we are sojourners, that we are wanderers whose home is yet to come. And so we live in a place, Jesus says, I have not taken them out of this world, even though it's hostile to them, but rather I have kept them in this world and I pray for them in this world that they live in. He says, we are like, like, a, like a minority of people who have our own culture, and yet we don't expect this place to reflect our values and our customs, and yet they still sometimes shape who we are. How many of us expect this world to be like us? How much of the time are we frustrated and discouraged and angry that our world does not reflect the values that we have, saying it's God's world, and so it should, rather than recognize that the Bible tells us again and again that our inheritance is eternal and it is yet to come, and that where we live, we should feel like a group of people who aren't yet home that we shouldn't feel that comfortable. Now, he's not saying make your life difficult intentionally because he's saying other people will probably do that for you. And I pray for the disciples because of that. But how much, not just of our frustration with the world, but how much of our restlessness in life and in the world is rooted in needing something now rather than knowing that it is to come later? in thinking that we need to just build a certain kind of life and then we'll be happy. If I could just find someone who likes me and then at least I won't be alone from this point on, then I'll be good in this life and in this world. I'll be, I'll be comfortable and I can put down roots and I'll be settled. If we can just have some kids and add them to this thing, then like we'll be comfortable and we can put down roots and we can be settled. If we can just manage to get a house and we can just have a place that's ours, then we can put down roots and we can get comfortable and we can settle and we can build. If I could just stop having kids and then maybe I could get comfortable and I could put down roots and I could get settled. Some people feel that way. Once I make enough money, I could be comfortable and I could settle and I could, I could put down roots. Once my health is better, once this time in life passes, once I've saved up enough, once I can do enough, once I get over what's happening, 
if I can just get to a point where I can, I can begin to build, then it will be okay. Because isn't that really what we're all entitled to? And we feel restless. We feel like, no, we're not there yet, but it's okay to want to be. And I'm not saying, of course, that any of those things are bad things. But I'm saying that if the goal for you is to finally have a home and to finally have a place that is yours on the, in this earth, on this earth and in this life, that until heaven comes, you will not have that home. You will always be restless. It will never be enough. And if you think it's enough, you're wrong. And if ultimately, it will be gone. The Bible says you aren't at home here, that we're sojourners, that we're wanderers, that we're on a journey and we have yet to get to the final place where we're meant to be and live forever. And until that point, if you think that you're home here, you're like somebody who went over to your friend's house and never left and just didn't go home. And they woke up and they walked out in their kitchen in the middle of the night and you were there and they were like, what are you doing in my house? And you're like, this is my house now. And they're like, you don't live here, go home. We don't really live here, and yet we're called to live here. Not only are we called to live here, we're called to care about the people here. We're called to live in a land that is not our own, where the people will treat us a certain way, and then to want for those people to have what we have. Why? Well, I can give you one selfish reason we would do that. is because the more people believe then the more it can become like our home. It doesn't become like our home by us accumulating stuff and by us getting to milestones in our lives. It becomes like our home as people come to believe, especially the people around us come to believe. Then it becomes like our forever home. Then it becomes a life that is built on something firm. Then we can put down roots and know that they will stay and they will grow deep and they will produce fruit. And so we encourage each other by saying, this isn't our home. And so it makes sense that we feel the way that we do. You know, the other thing that we say to one another is we say, you are being sanctified in this because Jesus prays for his disciples and he prays that as they live these lives that are difficult because they're not in their real home, he prays that they would be sanctified, that that makes them holier. What do we think of what it takes to become holy? We think what it takes to become holy is to separate ourselves to isolate ourselves from the world, to remove ourselves from things, and that by doing that, we can then be sanctified. But that's not what Jesus says here. He's praying here that as we live in this world that he didn't take us out of, as we are persecuted and as we share the good news with people, that we will be sanctified as we live in that world. Saying that we are holy people means that we're called out to be used for a purpose we are set apart for a purpose, but we're not removed and disconnected from the people in the world in which we live. And he says that as you live this way, you're going to become more like me. You're going to become more sanctified. And so the question isn't whether we will in the church or will not encourage one another. If you're part of the church, you're going to encourage, you're going to keep accountable. But the question is to what? Is it to the things that Jesus has prayed to the Father here that we would have help in? One of the biggest reasons why people wander from the church 
is because they don't care about the mission of God anymore. They say, I don't really care about people being reached. I don't really care about people having eternal life. I don't really care about others having this thing. And when we don't care about that, then we say, I care much more about my own personal spiritual experience, my own personal spiritual goal. And I can find that on my own. I can tailor fit something to myself. And for so many, the reason the church doesn't feel like something that we love, for some, something that is relevant, is because the very mission that the church was called to together feels irrelevant and isn't important. And Jesus promises them something great. He gives them this tremendously difficult, overwhelming job, and then he promises them something amazing. And we read about it back one chapter. He actually tells them this personally before he prays for them in 17. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. I'm going to stop for a second and tell you how crazy that statement is. Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. Jesus Christ has walked the earth with them and says to them, you'll be better off with me leaving, which is crazy. But then he finishes it and he says, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. He says, all the hard stuff that has to be done, I'm gonna do the heavy lifting. You will be given the counselor, the helper, which is the Holy Spirit. And how great is the Holy Spirit? Well, apparently the Holy Spirit is so great and so capable that it's better than having Jesus walking right beside you. And that's pretty good. And the Holy Spirit will empower you to do all the big stuff. And the Holy Spirit, you're not gonna change people's minds. You're not gonna change the way that they think and what they believe. The Holy Spirit is gonna do that. The Holy Spirit is gonna convict people. The Holy Spirit is gonna help people believe in me. I'm calling you to do something else, but know that this helper is coming and he will give you more than even I can give you by walking beside you now. That is what we're given in order to do this thing that God's called us to do. Why do we love the church? We love the church because the church has been given a mission. Because each and every one of us has been given a calling. This was never just about us. This was never just about me. I may have come to Jesus for me. I may have come to him seeking help for myself, seeking answers to my problems, seeking solutions to things. But what Jesus showed me was that he was calling me to something much greater than just myself. He said, I'm calling you to co-labor with me, to, to work with me in reaching the people that you love and the world that you live in with eternal life. And that as you do that, you're going to be holier. And how are you going to do that? You're going to do that in community. You're going to do that with these people. Why do we love the church? Because we can do together what we can't do on our own. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the Holy Spirit that you've given us. I think if many of us, well, I think we all think it would be much better to just have Jesus walking beside us every day, living with us, telling us what to do and how to do it. But if we can trust the Bible here, then we can trust that what we have been given instead is better. 
I pray that as we worship you now, that as we reflect on these things now, I pray that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that through your Spirit that you would be present here and that you'd be honored by our worship. I pray that even as we gather and we worship you, that we would be reminded that the purpose of the church is to worship you and that the mission exists because worship doesn't. And so this is a time that you can be worshiped by those who do believe in you and who do worship you. Let it be even a little bit worthy of who you are, God. It's in your name we pray, amen. Father, in John chapter three, Nicodemus is talking to Jesus and he, he tells Jesus, I just don't, I can't understand or believe what you're saying to me about being born again. And the advice given to him is, um, if you can believe the things that you have seen already, then can you not believe the things that you have yet to understand, Lord? For many of us, to, we are convinced that you bring joy, that in you is found a life that is better than anyone else could have. What's hard for us is to think about living for others to have that, Lord. It's hard to believe that we can still experience your joy. It's hard to believe that we could still experience the fullness of you when not living for ourselves, Lord. And so we pray that you give us faith to take those steps so that you could begin to show us in walking that out, that you are indeed present in that and that we will experience so much of your Holy Spirit that we will want to keep taking steps forward, Lord. Give us the faith to do that and help us as a church be there for one another as we do, Lord. It's in your name that we pray, amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.